So I think that when you create a show, uh, no matter what we're doing, we always go, we've got to at least create characters that we give a shit about. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if, if we're if we're writing a straight-to-video uh, animated Scooby-Doo movie, you know? We go, well, what's interesting about this? Like, why do we care? Because if we don't care, the audience isn't going to care. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Here we are, Sunset Gower Studios, with uh, two of my very, very old friends and colleagues, Scott Thomas, Jed Elinoff. Thank you. Thank you guys for being here today. Thanks yeah, for having of course. Us on. This yeah. is uh, really exciting. It's really amazing. Just every time I drive onto a lot, I don't know, I still get a rush. It's weird, I, you know, it's... Oh, yeah, it's the best. I mean, that's, you know, I remember coming here the first time to Hollywood and seeing them for the first time. I mean, I was, like, determined to move to New York City when I graduated college and then came to came to L.A. and, and somebody drove me past the Warner Brothers lot. And I was like, nope, I'm never going to New York. Forget New York. They don't have that because that is the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, and then when you pull up to that gate and they have your name and, I don't know, you're, like, somehow feel like, wow, I, I, I fooled someone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, no. We, I, th- I think uh, that's why uh, anymore it takes us a long time to actually like hang up posters on the wall and stuff because we're like at some point someone's going to figure out we're here and they're going to ask us to leave. Right. So I think that never goes away. <laughs> that's the nature of the business. It's echelons of exclusion. You know what I mean? You can get past this thing. If you can get past that gate, if you can get past that gate. Well, you got past some gate. <laughs> we did. And now here you are with an office being paid for by a little company called Netflix. Yeah, maybe you heard of them. I don't know. Uh, no, know. nobody ever talks about them. Never, ever. No. Not at all. Yeah, upstart, Silicon Valley. Yeah, maybe they'll make it, you know. We really kind of hope they uh, hope they get there, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, the specific show that we're gonna, that's going to launch off our conversation as I look at the poster to my left is Malibu Rescue, which, at least in my home, it's sort of like the old town road of television, you know, in, in the Pollock household. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, uh, Scott, you're very active on social media and watching sort of the process and, you know, pictures from set and just feeling like, okay, Kids Baywatch, like, I get this. This is this is awesome. And even though you have fair skin, I was a little worried about you getting sunburned. But Yeah, no, I, I definitely stayed in a tent. The sun and I do not uh, get along. So um, I... Uh... Yeah, I, I had a lot of uh, sunscreen on and, and stayed uh, shaded Good. as I much was, as possible. Because we don't want to have to send you back to Kansas for the winter. No, so. no. It's, it, the, yeah, we, I'd had enough beach by, by, like, for the next few years. I don't need to go back for a while. I love it. Well, let's talk about the light bulb for this show. I mean, where the idea first came from, when it first entered your stratosphere. And I guess, Jed, I'm looking at you. So why don't you answer that question? Yeah, Malibu uh, had an interesting journey. You know, it actually started uh, with a director named Savage Steve Holland, who's responsible for some classics in our uh, of our youth, uh, Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer. Um, he, he was a... Uh, 
he was the director, the writer and director of those movies. And those movies were incredibly influential on us. So much so that when we were doing some of our earlier projects, our cartoons and stuff like that, we would often have our writers, we would say, listen, guys, you have to ask yourself, what would Savage Steve Holland do right now in this moment? And that was a great way of, in our minds, of, um, of how to write physical comedy. And so, uh, and how to write villains, and how to write yes, villains. Yes, absolutely. Yes, he absolutely very eighties villains for real. Uh, and so, basically, uh, we were we were doing uh, we were working on Raven's Home at the time, and Netflix, our friends at Netflix, called us and said, "Hey, listen, we've got um, Savage has brought in an idea. We'd love for you guys to come and kind of give us your your take on it. You know, we really need somebody to come in and develop it." And 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 so we did, and we met with him, and we got the idea immediately. It was like a, a an '80s kind of homage to an '80s tone right out of the gate. Yeah, it was very sort of that slobs versus snobs uh, '80s thing, where you know we had like a, sort of the premises that these kids from the valley have come to take part for the for the first time. The Malibu Junior Rescue Program is letting other kids outside of Malibu in, and so this group of knuckleheads from the the valley you know, is bust over to take part in this. And of course the Malibu kids don't want them there. And and once they realize the Malibu kids don't want them there, then they go, well, we're going to prove that we deserve to be here. And, and, uh, and we're going to show them that just because we're from the Valley and we don't have a beach, uh, that we can be awesome at this. And, you know, so it really is, it's about a kid who sort of learns to, to stop being, you know, kind of, a um, an idiot and actually take responsibility and be a leader. Um, and this group of, of, uh, sort of ragtag team of misfits that become really good friends through this whole thing. And, um, and that just spoke to every single eighties movie that we grew up on that we loved, you know, spies like us and Caddyshack and, and, uh, you know, Ghostbusters and any of that thing where it's the, it's an underdog story and tale as old as time. Absolutely. And, uh, so when we, you know, when we heard about this and that it was, you know, that the idea came from Savage. We were super excited. We sat down and and really kind of took the 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 you know sort of basic idea and then redeveloped it um, in, into uh, at the time it was a movie. Went back to Netflix and pitched it. Um, Jed and I pitched it to uh, the kids and family um, ex- executives at Netflix, and they loved it. And um, we because we were busy with Raven's Home on Disney Channel at the time, we we um, couldn't. Do a, run a series, so another series. So we uh, did it as a movie, wrote it for them. By the time we wrote it and turned it in, uh, season one of Raven's Home was done, and we did have sort of an opportunity to kind of, you know, jump ship over to Netflix. Um, and so after they read the script for the movie, they went, hey, what if we just use this as a backdoor pilot and, and uh, turn this into a series? And so we immediately started thinking of, you know, assembling our writer's room and thinking of uh, what, what would be the eight episodes of Malibu Rescue, the series. And something that's kind of exceptionally fun and doesn't happen often is when you do have a thing like that. And because it's Netflix and they go, we already had the movie written. So we already had introduced our characters in a, in a much more luxurious way, because rarely in tele, especially kids television, do you get an hour to introduce your characters? It's, you know, 22 minutes, 2130 and you're out the door. Uh, because we knew we had a series coming on the back of it, everything we did had a much longer view, which was really a fun way to approach making a television series. Normally, you don't get to spe- spend that much time thinking about it or, hey, we're gonna while we're making the movie, we already are planning, like Scott said, for the series. And as a result, who, what are we going to do with these characters when they come back? Or this kid who we weren't sure was going to be anything turns out to be 
a huge part of it. And all that, you know, that, that was an incredible thing because to make the movie, finish the movie, then have three months to write and make the series is just, you know, you never get an opportunity like that. Except that's now your proposal to Netflix on everything, right? Pretty much, yeah. Well, now we say, yeah, well, that's, it, the way, that's the best way now. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was funny because if we had done this as a series from the beginning, we probably would have started the way that the series starts with them already uh, as junior lifeguards, you know. And But then we also would have had to introduce all the characters and their relationships and the fact that these kids didn't really know each other and then they're getting to know and pack all that into, you know, 20 or 22 minutes. With the movie, it was actually almost like making the prequel uh, and then um, and then the series comes off of that. And so we were able to use a standalone story for the movie to tell how these kids got involved in the program, how they met each other, how, you know, how they sort of like uh, these very different personalities became friends. And then once, uh, like Jed said, once the once we were ready to, to write the first episode of the series, we didn't have to use any real estate for that. We, we could just jump right into it. The characters were already set up. You know, uh, we already knew who the bad guy was. We knew why they didn't like him. Uh, it was like dropping one or two lines in there to kind of remind everybody of what the situation was. And then we were off and running, which you, you rarely get to do because usually when you're doing a pilot, everyone starts chiming in, every executive starts chiming in, and, and, and you pack so much information into the pilot that at some point it just becomes ridiculous. It's like we don't need to know all this in the yeah, pilot. Yeah. But they worry, everybody worries about, you know, are kids going to know? Are they going to understand? Especially for, you know, kids, a kid audience. Are they going to understand this? Are they going to, you know, really know this person's situation? You've got to make them aspirational, but relatable and likable, but also, you know, uh, sort of conflicted and interesting. And and um, everybody's so worried about packing every little thing in there so that, you know, every single kid in the world likes this show. Do we give the audience enough credit? No. No. I mean, you have kids. You watch. I, I, my kids watch a show. They will accept the information as it's doled out to them. All you have to do is make sure you don't break the trance. Don't don't make them ask the why did that happen or that. And and that's you know that's a basic rule of making television. Don't don't break the trance. Make sure that like, and and movies like as long as you as long as we're in that world and we're willing to go with it, they believe you know you're going to tell a story just like any other story. We just can't do sex jokes and we can't do. Uh, uh, we, we can't go out be reverential remember when because kids don't have a real sense of uh, nostalgia yeah. they they like kid irony and nostalgia do not work for kids they, they like they're funny adult jokes executives like them we like them but anytime we do it kids don't care because don't kids care. are like goldfish they just like they know what's right in front of them they're swimming around their bowl they don't remember yesterday they're not thinking about tomorrow um, and, uh, you know, so to sort of dwell on that or think, oh, they're going to think this is really funny because this is how it used to be. They don't care. It's like the biggest mistake people make is they go, oh, we're going to do this scene exactly like the scene in The Godfather. And you go, guys, what kid has ever seen The Godfather? You know what I mean? <laughs> Even now, like, like, you know, like, it's just that movie's like ancient now. Right. You know what I mean? Would the Malibu Rescue movie be nostalgic for them or even that right 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 now like yeah if you've seen what you've seen episode eight you might look back at the movie and go gosh remember when tyler was so he yeah. was so young he just didn't know <laughs> but that's an interesting thing right because you think about some of the other big kid remakes raven's home being yours you know or um fuller house obviously mm -hmm. one that gets a lot of play on netflix and in my house like we're to your point like we as the adults are the ones who remember back or maybe raven's a little past my time for you to take IP that wasn't even old, right? But that still had a, you know, you still had that sort of 
planted that flag, it's it's kind of brilliant. You got the best of both worlds. You got to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Well, the the interesting thing about about um, also with Raven's Home was that that we were ta- uh, we were basically we had kind of two audiences that we had to satisfy with that. We had to we knew that there was going to be an audience of you know millennials, twenty somethings who who um, grew up on on that so Raven, and uh, that we wanted them to watch it and go. This feels like sort of the next you know, generation of the show, it feels like Raven grown up and Raven and Chelsea are now adults and, and there's, but they're still the characters we know and love. And, you know, she still has visions of the future and that messes up, you know, her life, uh, to comedic effect. But we also knew there would be a new group of kids who probably didn't know the old show and we had to introduce it as if it were a new show. And I think, you know, when we talk about not really wanting to, to, uh, count on nostalgia with kids, that was a tricky one because there was we we knew that we were going to be bringing in an older audience that was going to be watching this and hopefully uh if some of these people had kids would be watching with their kids um and really make it more of a family show and so we approached it sort of from two directions we went let's make sure that we're paying homage to the old show and and getting giving everybody what they sort of know and love about that show but that we're presenting this as a new show that this is a new situation it's you know our point of view it's our sort of sense of humor um and uh and that we're you know uh even though it's it's bringing back uh that's a raven it feels fresh and it feels new and keep in mind, you know, this was for Disney Channel. You know, Netflix, Netflix, you know, they can get their subscriber numbers from a number of their views from a number of different places. But Disney Channel is only interested in that specific audience. They're interested in the kid audience. So that made this a particular challenge because they don't they're not as interested in the anyone over 18 for Disney Channel. Like that number doesn't mean anything to them. Right. So why did they care about keeping them happy? I, they, I we cared. You know, and I think they cared ultimately because they cared about the legacy of the show. You know what I mean? And Raven cared deeply about the, and, and Annalisa cared deeply about the legacy of the show. Uh, and, you know, and, and Scott and I only did the first season, but I'll keep, like, they're two of the, the most fun actresses to work with in terms of their ability. You know, I mean, you would go like, here's a crazy thing. Maybe this will work. And the two of them could do stuff. And that was, that made it not a kid show. But it was very much those four kids shows. It was very much that they had to be the ones that the audience fell in love with. Well, it's interesting, though, as we talk in this IP dominated universe that we're in entertainment space. Uh, my friend's daughter, teenage daughter, I was having a conversation with her last week. And as I'm sure many of you do, right, use them a little bit as a focus group. Of course. And she loves Riverdale. Mm-hmm. She had never heard of Archie the comic strip ever. And it just made me wonder why they even relied on that as source material What's the advantage of it when I honestly think it's in selling it. I I think I think that that I think that right now we're in a place where where IP is what everybody wants. And uh, if you went and you go, if 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 you I I think if someone had just taken out Riverdale as an original idea, then it wouldn't have gotten as much interest. I think people like the idea of taking old shows kind of the older, the better, because you can do more with it. There's there 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 are always going to be those people who grew up on it. And are going to go. You're ruining my childhood. But um, when you're dealing with something like Archie, n- there now there's such a wide rift between those people who grew up on it and everyone else that it's new to everyone. And so I think when you're selling it, you go in there and you go, "Listen, we want to do this. It's really dark and soapy and sexy, and there's murder and there's all this crazy stuff, and it's Archie and it's Jughead and it's Betty and Veronica, and that makes people sit up." As opposed to going, 
it's all these random characters I made up that you don't know. It also gives you license to do sometimes more interesting things than maybe you would if you were just making a regular teenage soap. You know, I think if you've ever watched uh, the new Sabrina, that's another one on, on Netflix that like, it's really dark and it's, you know, it's pretty soapy. It's really dark. It's fun to watch, but you kind of go like, they're, they're already kind of leaning way into witchcraft and you go, that's pretty interesting. Like, and again, if you go, I'm just going to remake Sabrina the Teenage Witch. You couldn't do it. You know, I mean, full, like, believe it or not, we've actually moved on since the era of Fuller House. You know, like, in a way, that's already an old idea. Like, oh, we're just going to reboot it and add new people. Like, that's already old. Raven's Home is already old. You know, now we got to come up with a cool twist on those things or else, you know, it just feels, people feel like it's it's bullshit. Well, now you said that kids don't appreciate nostalgia or understand, or understand it really, at least as a comedic device. But one thing that I find really interesting is how quickly nostalgia is moving. Right. Mm-hmm. And Fuller House came out, what, five years ago? And like, it's just already, we've yeah. moved on. We've moved past it yep. to some kind of new next generation. Well, it's thing, the, right? I mean, that's when people talk about the Netflix, the three seasons and done or two seasons and done kind of formula because that's enough. People are done, you know, no, like, and it's hard because we've sort of, because we've moved away from that every week release, you know, now people just devour entertainment. You know, they just absolutely devour it. And then you go, all right, now what? Give me something else. I mean, you finish a show on Netflix and then you're like, I got to wait, what, a year for the next one? And I hope I remember it's on unless it's Stranger Things and it's a huge hit. You go, gosh, I hope I hope I remember to, to watch this in a year. So how do we keep up, right? Right. It's, it's a sprint and a marathon. It really is. It's not either or, you know. Well, and I think that's what we're going to, I think that now that the more that that everyone's moving to streaming platforms, I think that that that's going to have to be something that um, people get inventive with. You know, I think in the same way that, you know, I remember when when we were all at at VH1 and and it was, you know, TiVo was just suddenly becoming a, a thing. And, and all of a sudden it was like, how do we get people to stop fast forwarding through commercials? How do we, you know, do how do we put we the commercials? To, like, come up with weird, we remember that coming, trying to come up with ideas for like content that would exist at random moments within the commercials that, so maybe you'd have to stop and watch it. I mean, you'd be like, fast forwarding and you'd trick them into thinking the show's back yeah, on yeah. or, you know, and then we're, you know, we're now, they still do it working all this like in your face um, product placement into shows so that you're basically getting it that way, you know, um, but I think that now the big thing is going to go is going to be how do we how do we create enough content for a particular show that people don't have to because they're going to watch it in a week or a day, you know, and then they're going to wait a year to see it again. I mean, you know, so I think that we're going to, you know, the people, you know, people are already ordering, you know, longer uh, first seasons and then dividing them up. You know, so that they drop maybe five or eight episodes and then hold on to, you know, uh, 13 of them or however many and and then drop those later in the year. One, isn't that also social media, right? Like the celebrities who have the huge social media presence, it's a way to matter seven days a week and 365 days a year. And also the access is different. You know, I mean, I definitely think like because of that, because you feel like you can get close to the people who are famous, who you love. Now you can see them on your phone every day. You get a real sense of what their lives are like. It's really different. It's really different than even what it was 10 years ago or or, or 15 years ago. You know, celebrity was a big deal when we were at VH1 because still you didn't have, like that was, you were seeing what we thought was their real lives, you know, because it really was before social media. So all of a sudden shows where you were following the Kardashians, you're going, oh, this is amazing. I'm like seeing their life. I see their house. I see like, this is a normal interaction they're having. They're out to dinner. And even though it was highly produced, you still felt like you were seeing more of their lives. And now we have Instagram. So we see even more of their lives. But there was also only that one window. 
You know, there was if it was VH1, then it was it, that was your window into their life. And now there's multiple windows, and and they're giving you access. And and um, so I think it's a really you know it's an interesting time. It's 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 uh, you know how do we how do we sort of keep up with with um, you know everyone's uh, keep their attention, keep feeding them these shows when everything's just becoming more and more disposable everything you know i mean now every year a new phone comes out and we'd go well this phone sucks i'm getting rid of this stupid fucking thing and i'm getting the new one it's only a year old you know so you know how do we how do we keep up with uh with you know in this in this expanding landscape now that there's you know it's it's crazy like we'll drive around la and you see billboards for you know a show like a series starring starring julia roberts or a series you know starring uh george clooney and like, I haven't seen it. I don't really, you know, Could everyone's you not watching a series starring Julie Roberts. <laughs> I did not watch Homecoming. I'll never watch it. I won't. And that's you go. I mean, like, just imagine telling yourself you just walked out of Pretty Woman. And you go, guess what? She's going to be on a TV show and you're <laughs> not going to watch it. You're not going to. Because there's so much TV. Like, right. you know, everything's I'm... competing with Game of Thrones. Well, yeah. And and it's competing with stuff that, you know, I've never watched Deadwood. And I want to watch. Surprising coming from I know. you. And I want to watch Deadwood because I'm because I'm a redneck. Is that why? No, um, just because it's dark. No, I know. I know. Guy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a redneck. No, I know. So you are dark and upset. Well, and and I'm burning the sun. Yeah, but and South um, Dakota is not that far from Kansas. That's true. Right. Uh, there's a yeah. The, the the Western legacy of Kansas is is alive and well um, in my heart. But um, the the thing is. Now, when I get done watching, you know, the new season of Tra- Stranger Things, or I get done watching, you know, Game of Thrones, and I need something new to watch, I can go back and, wa- and watch the all of Deadwood. So we're not we're not only competing with the the stuff that is on right now; we're competing with years of content that we haven't gotten around to watching. Everything so, that's ever existed. So and and it's accessible. You know, we can just get on our Apple TV or whatever, and we can get on Hulu and Netflix and 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 Amazon Prime and everything else, and we can watch. The, the multiple seasons of a show that we just haven't gotten around to watching. When I think about that as it pertains to popular music, right? Because when we were kids, right, you had to go and buy CDs and whatever, hope that the songs were going to get played on the radio. But we had the ability to buy any CDs we wanted, right? Or cassettes. But you gravitate for a while. It's to the whatever popular stuff. Then you find your own lane. But now kids, like, they don't have to go to the warehouse for Music Plus, right? My kids will choose the pop stuff still because they're young. But I say to them all the time, every song ever created, just ask Alexa, right? Go on my Apple Music or on Spotify. Like, it's all there for you. So yet new popular music still comes around. And that's kind of the amazing thing. Well, that's the thing about culture. I think that's the thing about, about I mean, I don't want to call it art, but that's the thing about about the stuff that we all create is that, you know, Wisconsin and I just came back from Comic-Con. And I think you realize people are passionate about the things that speak to them. And that's why people really hook into this stuff. They find a thing that just speaks to them and they love it and they form communities around it in a way that that's, that's probably somewhat new-ish, you know? I mean, that people really are really, really giving over to it. Uh, you know, where before it was a real, you know, Comic-Con was this real niche thing. It was 50 years old, we found out going down there. And I'm sure for most of those 50 years, that was a pretty, you know, pretty closed group of people. They were comic fans who were hardcore comic fans. But now there were so many people there from all, I mean, you know, and it was like 
pe- these were people who were united in this idea of the pop culture that we love is what we that's what defines us and that so that's pretty interesting like that's an interesting time to live in to be making it and then see that people real that people really really speaks to them you know but we're also in a place when where you know you can self-publish your own graphic novel you can put your own comic book out there and you can go to these conventions and you can sell it and you can try to build uh, an audience and and so you know years and years and years ago when it was probably like you would go down there and you go i'm marvel i'm dc you know it's like now it's there's thousands of 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 characters and comic books and and movies and tv shows and you know there's horror down there and there's sci-fi and everything and and it is it's just it's there's so much to dig through now when you talk about like music i like i rarely listen to an entire album anymore i just like save a bunch of stuff on spotify and then i shuffle through it and I think one of the things, one of the reasons I think vinyl is so exciting to people is because it forces you to sit down and listen to an entire album as it was meant to be. And, and the thought that went into it and listening to each song and, you know, that's becoming more and more difficult uh, to, to sort of our attention spans or, or, you know, we just want it. We get through it. Give me the next thing, you know, stay on top, stay current. Are these the kinds of conversations you have with the kids on your shows? Like when you when you talk to them as sort of mentors do they just stare at you blankly or? Well, there's a lot of reasons. We, I mean, we, we definitely, like anytime we throw out a reference and they're like, I don't know what that is. And you go, you seriously, like you don't know who, you know, you, you, like we were talking to someone the other day and they were, they were saying that they were talking to someone um, who didn't know it was Morgan Freeman. They didn't know who Morgan Freeman was. And, and it's like, you don't know who Morgan Freeman is? You know, it's like that. It's so, you know, you'll throw out, We'll throw out references when Jed talks about like The Godfather, and you go, they don't know what it is. So seen, that that's when we I get think my dad watches that. I think my grandpa watches that. I mean, that's kind of funny. But I think I, I think the other thing is what's exciting about working with kids in that way and teenagers is that you know you see that some stuff is universal, and I see it in my own kids. Like you know, yeah, they watch YouTube, they have their favorite YouTube thing, but there is also a moment where they go. I don't want to watch this. Like, you know, they typically watch YouTube on their phone or on their tablet or on a tablet or whatever. But when they want to watch a movie, most of the time, my older daughter will start to watch on her phone more, but they watch it on TV or they want to watch a TV show. They come and they watch it on TV and they still want that experience. Is that sort of like listening to something on vinyl? Yeah, like I the think attention span? A little bit. I mean, I think I think it's, you know, it's more of a commitment. I think it, it go, honestly, it goes to the thing that is timeless, which is storytelling. It, it, it. It, you know, no matter what the medium is, if you're telling a story that's engrossing and has, you know, no one is coming up with 100% original characters. These are all versions of things that we grew up on loving. These are versions of people we know or really interesting, you know, uh, uh, complicated um, characters that, that are, you know, combinations of things that we sort of steal from other places. But so they're, they're timeless. I mean, these are every, the human experience is, you know, like has not changed that much. It's just how we experience it. So I think that when you create a show, uh, no matter what we're doing, we always go, we've got to at least create characters that we give a shit about. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if, if we're, if we're writing a straight to video, uh, animated Scooby-Doo movie, 
you know we go well what's interesting about this like who you know and, and it's not i don't want to sound pretentious in the way that we think we're we're writing you know genius at that point but we go why do we care because if we don't care the audience isn't going to care if i don't want to come in here every day and do it and look at him and do it then then nobody else definitely nobody else is going to want to watch it and i think like you have to find a way to fall in love with this stuff at any level and i think that for reality i think that for uh f- for kids television i think that you know because look this is a this business is huge and we serve all different types of viewers and at the end of the day you know i mean something that scott and i've always done first of all we're like massive massive slots we'll we almost never say no and i think that like that served us in a lot of ways we wind up i mean you know there's a you look at this room there's a lot of random posters for stuff you're like i've never seen that thing i didn't even know that was a thing it feels a little bit like you're in you know like when you watch a movie and then there's like tv shows and movies in that movie and so you kind of the more you spend time in this office you go i'm in a movie this is not real like these can't possibly exist sorry to cut you off but i do notice that you have two of the same posters well, one's well, for the series and one's for the movie. Oh, yeah. God, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how they gave it to us. I'm with you because I wish that they had put, they had differentiated that that was for the movie. Yeah. You can also tell because that poster is a little more half-assed and that one actually looks like a TV show poster. Very true. Uh, so, But, right. you know, I think that, to Judd's point, I think one of the things that we've really tried to do is, um, you know, we like working. We like being able to pay our bills, but we also, every job you take, you never know because when you talk about TV turning over so quickly and TV shows, those executives turn over quickly too. I mean, they're, they're, it's rare that you meet someone and you go, I've been working at this company for 30 years. I mean, mostly it's, they work there a couple of years, two, three years, they move on to somewhere else. And you, you often, never know. if you did a good job for them, they will call you. You know, I mean, our, our, our very first one of our very first scripted projects that we ever did was a Scooby-Doo directed video movie. And the way we got it was there was a woman who worked at VH1 who moved over to Warner Animation. And we, she called us and we said, hey, you guys wrote a bunch of stuff for us. We loved it. Would you like to come in and do this? So it wasn't our first scripted thing, but it was our first scripted thing outside of Viacom at the time. And then we did that. And that was years and years ago. And we did a few more you know, animated movies for them. And now we're still having conversations with executives who were there and, and elsewhere about new projects. And you know, eventually it kind of spins into things that it's not just someone calling you up and it's a, you know, a sort of random job that you take. It's actually then, then you go in and you go, suddenly I have an opportunity to pitch a show that I'm super passionate about you know, and get a series going. Well, you guys have an overall deal with Netflix, which I think is insane. Not insane that you have it, but like... No, trust me, it's a little, it's insane, a little insane. insane, yeah. No, yeah. but as we think about the pinnacle of entertainment and where we are, like, there's very few creators who can say that, and it's a huge testament to you guys, but you've had this very circuitous kind of journey, and Absolutely. we we worked together at VH1 when you guys were coming up with crazy reality show ideas, and you did Scooby-Doo direct to, you know, DVD, and, you know, you got into the kids' things. I mean, I think it would be interesting for the audience to understand a little bit, beyond just saying yes to everything, mm-hmm. how you... <laughs> we have said no a few times. Okay, but barely. Barely. Yeah, barely. <laughs> barely. But so, okay, let's let's step back. You guys are writing partners, and you have been for how many years? It's gotta be 15 years It's now? over 15 like years. That, 16 years. Yeah. So even how does, as, you know, some of our audience trying to figure out where, where they're gonna go in their career, maybe entertaining the idea of joining forces with someone, right? Your entertainment force is the name of your company. How did that go? Was it like a proposal? Was it a, hey, we should go on a date? Like what What was the... I mean, it, I started at VH1 as an assistant. Um, it was back when VH1 was doing almost all behind the music. And the entire floor that we were on was just little pods of, of 
producers and associate producers and researchers doing specific behind, you know, behind the music episodes. Um, and I was an assistant there, but I knew I wanted to be in scripted. I, I wanted to, you know, write TV shows and movies. Um, at the time, I was I was sort of my favorite genre is horror, so I was writing a lot of horror, and and just handing it out to anyone who would read it. Um, and then eventually they went, oh, you know, I think they they went. This guy can write, and 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 he you know doesn't just have to go run and get us lunch. Let's let's throw something at him. So they started having me punch up some things and punch up scripts for them. And eventually, I just started producing shows for them. Uh, Not and scripted shows. Though. No, no, uh, it was all unscripted. It was all docs. It was, you know, at the, again, at the time, it was like music specials and things like that. Um, and then, you know, VH1 kind of went through the thing where behind the music stopped rating as well. And like every network, they went, holy shit, what are we? Like what, that's been the entire schedule was behind the music. And it was, and we were sort of the kind of adult contemporary music channel. What are we now? And in that turmoil, I think I sort of benefited from it and kind of like was able to, uh, you know, get to do some specials for them and produce specials and write specials and, and write host copy for them and everything. And they ended up sticking me in an office um, to work on these things. And it just happened that at the same time, Jed was was doing a similar thing with them. We ended up working on a special together um, and uh, and we were in the same office. And we just got along really well. We realized we had the same sense of humor, that we had sort of the same touchstones, uh, uh, you know, movies and TV shows from the 80s that we loved. And um, and we went, let's just try writing something together. You know, I mean, I don't think it was ever really the plan to go, I'm going to find a partner. It was just we we just realized we were two of the same idiot and that we would, uh, you know, get along really well and write really funny stuff together. So. We yep. did. We wrote a pilot together, and and then ended up getting an agent together. Yeah, my I I started um, in sitcoms. I mean, like my first job out of college was on a sitcom. I got my first writing credit that way. Uh, but I also, and this was in the mid '90s, so you know that was back when that was still like sitcoms were huge. I mean, you know, I think there were like sixty on at the time or something like that. I mean, it was felt like I remember going from from college to working on a studio lot in, in CBS Radford and that was all sitcoms and it felt like being in college again and you just like these were you know the different production offices were people you knew from different shows and you know if you had a, if you shot on Tuesdays then you would go out to the same bar with all the Tuesday shows and if you shot on Fridays you'd go out with all the Friday bar Friday shows and that was so cool and I was like I, I, I did that and then I did uh, so, I, so I worked on a couple of sitcoms and um, and then like Survivor happened and reality just blew up I mean, I, I had worked on the last season of Seinfeld, and I remember watching the finale going into the finale of Seinfeld became that was the launcher for whatever the second maybe it was the second season of Survivor or something like that. And I just remember it really was like this, you know, going from the biggest sitcom that was on television to what became the biggest reality show at that time. And, go, and it was and, like the first. It was like pr hearing the first sort of chords of uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Exactly. <laughs> you know? it's, it's every single behind the music episode, Act Four, when uh, it's Rat every hair Rat metal band that goes, "Yes, we got a deal. We're putting our album out," and, and then, then Teen Spirit happens. It's exactly that. So I was living in act, the sitcoms Act Four of behind the music. Uh, basically, you know, and, and, and just the bottom dropped out of scripted television. And that that like we were talking about this a little bit before before we start recording, but that was a, such a crazy moment to go like this was what television looked like since the fifties, since the honeymooners. This is how television worked, and it's all about to change, and it did. Uh, and so you know, I, we kind of. But if the idea was you wanted to be a writer, it was 
I was going to write anything, anything that would pay me to write. And so uh, eventually that led me to, to a show. We worked on a, a show for VH1 together. We were kind of worked on together uh, a, a special. And then, like Scott said, we were put in an office together. And I, I mean, I will say, like, we are definitely the same kind of idiot, but I think we have really, really uh, different skill sets. And I think that's why it's worked. Because, you know, writing partnership is a marriage and it's it's hard. And, and it's, you put work into it. And, you know, you guys, it's, you don't always, you don't, you know, you don't always want the same thing at the same time. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. That's hard. And I think you're, you know, you sort of both excel at different things and that we tend to both excel at different things, which has been, but we write really, really well together. And I think that that's been the strength of it. Did you guys feel like, because when you were at VH1, some of these writing opportunities came up, but certainly by the time I got there in, I guess, 2007, 2008, you know, those years, there wasn't a lot of use for your writing and you guys were coming up with formats. Mm. Did you feel like we're off course and we need to get back on course to what we want? I mean, what what sort of got you back into, you know, television, scripted television, kids television? We never lost sight. We never lost sight of wanting to do that. I mean, it was always like, hey, Coming, the nice thing about that was it was the best practice for pitching. We had to pitch every week there, sometimes two or three times a week. You know, we'd have to go in and pitch something. And that was the, I mean, that was the most amazing school because you have to get somebody on board with your idea. And sometimes you got it and sometimes you don't. And that was a great place to fail because every time we tried over and over and over again, and sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. But that, what an amazing education. But we never lost sight of wanting to write. Well, we also had, we had a, a really weird deal at VH1 where they, they put us in, you know, basically kind of a, a non-exclusive overall. I mean, it was, they were, they basically were paying us every week to be there and we would come up with ideas um, for reality shows and, and, and things. And, or take the meetings you guys didn't want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, you know, somebody was coming in and nobody wanted to take the meeting and they would send us in and, or someone would come in with an idea that they knew they liked sort of the kernel of that idea, but they knew that it wasn't going to be quite what they wanted. Can you work with this person and, and develop it and turn it into something we want? And so we were always doing that stuff, but but it was also, it was non-exclusive. So we were able to, you know, we were out pitching shows to, at the time, we ended up doing a, uh, a pilot for, um, we wrote a pilot for the UPN right before it became, you know, CW. Um, and uh, with Tyra Banks, and it was a, uh, a sitcom spinoff of America's Next Top Model. Um, and so we ended up meeting someone at Tyra's company. We, because we were so steeped in reality TV, we had watched a lot of Top Model. We knew it, you know, we loved it. We were passionate about Top Model. And so when we ended up meeting with Tyra, she thought it was really funny that we were so passionate about Top Model. And they wanted to do, you know, at the time, UPN wanted to do a, uh, a sitcom about a model who was on sort of a, a fake season of Top Model, doesn't win, but moves to New York and goes, I'm going to be a model because I learned everything I need to know from reality TV. And then it turns out she didn't. You it, was, know, that, it was Mary Charlie Moore without the divorce. You know what I mean? Instead of the divorce, it was a reality show. And so, uh, so, and it was really fun, but we were doing that while we were at VH1. So we would like work on our VH1 stuff and then we would stay there till in our office till midnight or one in the morning writing this script, um, the sitcom script. And we did that. We ended up around that time we kind of accidentally got into kids TV because it wasn't something that we were actively pursuing, but we had written a spec that was a, an adult show and um, it somehow ended up uh, on an executive's desk at Disney Channel. They read it, it had a kid character in it that they thought was really funny. And they asked us to come in and meet with them. And we went in and they said, hey, we have an idea for a show. 
we pitched it back to him and sold it to him. And suddenly we were into kids TV. We were, we were doing our, that. We were in our early 30s. So, you know, for kids television at the time, and it's changed, that landscape has changed somewhat. But for kids TV at the time, we were in our early 30s, which made us babies in that world. Because most of the people that were in kids TV at the time were people who had had basically kind of run the gamut in, in primetime sitcoms and were now in their 60s. You know what I mean? So we were we were infants doing that job. And we probably behaved that way. I mean, we, we probably like you look back on the shows and you go, yeah, we had a lot to learn. Like like they were there's a reason that well, some yes of those early no. ones didn't go to series. But, but the but. fact that you could be more of like a big brother or big brothers to these kids or, you know, cool uncles. Yeah, I think sure we, were so, we were so we didn't have kids or if we did. I mean, I think by the time we shot our first one, we each had I one. I just had. Was, yeah, Aubrey we, was a baby. she was like three months old. And so um, but I think That's that we were trying to take a, a you know, we were that trying to bring a a fresh perspective to it. Um, and uh, and we we looked at it like everything else. We looked at it like, you know, we just want to write TV. We just want to write. I think that, to Jed's point, there were a lot of people who had sort of had previous success in primetime shows and that had sort of gone away because of reality TV. And now they sort of felt like they were slumming it a little in kids TV. We, we were like, hell yeah, let's do more of this. You know, like let's, and people said yes. You know what I mean? It took time. We made that pilot, that first pilot, it didn't go, which was crushing. You know what I mean? Like every time a pilot, a project doesn't go, it hurts, but nothing hurts like that first one. I mean, that, that heartbreak was, I, I, I think I stumbled onto some emails between us uh, at that time and we were just ruined by it because that was also the moment that god bless his heart jeff old was like hey guys i think we're sort of like good on your deal now you know like and it was the sweetest 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 goodbye and but we were like that. you know really you paid us like a year too long so we totally understand <laughs> totally it. like you should have it. kicked us out the door life out of vh1 like a year and ago he couldn't have been nicer about it and he was like you know i mean he even was like hey i'll buy a pilot from you when we leave you know i mean it was like amazing you know but but it was it was crushing because we you know but it just lit a fire and we were like we've got to get some stuff going and you know we so well, and you have yeah and i and i think that you know the way that we've always approached this is we've whether it's kids tv or it's something where that we're you know it's a, a movie or it's something that we're you know de- developing to to take out um to sort of the grown-up channels um we always approach it in the same way. We always I go. Like that we look at the networks as the grown-up. I know, I know. Do, that's we exactly do. what we do. Well, because I don't want to say you know, uh, you know, adult, adult. TV because no, then it's, it's like we're making uh, you know right, porn. porn. But, but I think um, that's really funny though. That's that is like that's, it's the grown-up channels. They're grown-ups. But I think that we you know we always went. We're we're going to we're we're going to write something that that we think is funny. Obviously, we know our audience. We know that it's got to be a certain tone. It's got to be, you know, jokes that kids will find funny too. But if we don't care about it, who, why should we expect anyone else to? And so we've never approached these things like, well, I'm kind of slumming it and I'm just going to phone it in. I mean, you can ask our writers. Every writer's room we've had, they we keep them way too late. Like the, we, we've, we, because we want even the table read script to be as funny as it can be. But it shows, right? And I think I say to people, I've said it on this before, you practice like you play. And if you don't care, and if you're trying to sell something, certainly, and you're kind of half-assing it, Everybody it has knows. zero percent Everyone chance. Yeah, yeah. We, anytime chance. we've, and we have, we've gone out and pitched things that we weren't quite ready for, or we didn't 100% believe in, but we were like, well, the meeting's set up and we gotta take it, and it sucks. It, it's not a good pitch. It's embarrassing, yeah. You know? Well, you guys have given a lot of great advice already, but I have to ask the question that I ask in every one of these, which is specifically advice for your younger self. You know, you're 25 years old, you're here. We'll start with you, Jed. You know, Seinfeld's now gone away. Is What would you tell 25-year-old Jed? 
I don't know. You know, like there's some things that sometimes I wear, you know, I'm a worrier by nature. I'm the neuro, I'm definitely, you know, I externalize my neuroses a lot more than Scott does. Um, which isn't to say he's not neurotic. It just, he internalizes it. Uh, I turn it into ulcers. He does. <laughs> um, and I just wring my hands. You know, I, I think there's like, there's a couple of times, you know, working on Raven's Home was, was a particularly challenging one. And I remember, th- this is not specific to what you just said, but I was... A, we were working so late and working so hard. And I remember coming home one morning, I got home around six in the morning from, from being there all night. And my daughter, who was, I think, 12 at the time, well, you know, she was getting ready to get up for school and we'd been gone all night. And she said, she goes, dad, it's a kid's TV show. And when a 12 year old says that to you, you go like, hey, like th- there are definitely times when I think we could have, um, just sat back a little, not, not, not coasted, but gone, you know what? We don't need to kill ourselves tonight. We don't need to, like the answer will come tomorrow. But I think we were like, I don't want to walk out the door until it's as perfect as I can make it. You know, I think we definitely beat ourselves up pretty good over the years. And the problem is if I said, am I, would I not do it again? I will do it all again. I promise you we'll probably in the next week, we'll do it all again. But that's, something I, a lesson I wish I could learn like hey and I think it's also like it takes a long time to develop your voice and it's a it's it's overnight success is a misnomer it's I think I mean I'm sure there's some people that are in the right place at the right time and it works out for them but you know we lived every year of that 15 years and he wrote on his own before that and I wrote on my own before that and you know it takes a long time to you know the the Hollywood that I thought I was inheriting when I came out here was you come, you find a show, you get on, you get, a, you get a job as a writer's assistant on a TV show. That show's got fifteen or twenty people on staff. At some point, some of those upper level people are going to go off to make their own deal, and you're going to get pulled into the, you're going to get pulled into the slipstream. And then you could, and we we know people who have lived for ten years on one writing staff, hidden for ten years on a writing staff. And I wouldn't, I think our career, as weird as it's been, I think has forced us through trials by fire to to find what our voice is and to to make that our that our career selling that voice you know and running and learning how to running a tv show the hard way you know we never staffed on a show we had to wa- we had to figure it all out which came with a lot of mistakes but i wouldn't trade those mistakes because now i know i know deep in my soul how not to make them well someone paid for your internship it's yeah they did they definitely did i think once you sell like you know, we, we sort of started out selling pilots. We were pitching pilots and 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 um, and we once we sold a pilot, we kind of went, let's do that again. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've never staffed. And and because of that, because we just got that we we got that taste for it. And we went, let's sell more pilots because, you know, and then we then we sold them. And then eventually, you know, uh, a few of them went to series. And, you know, Malibu Rescue is the fourth um, series that we've run. And um, and it's fun. <laughs> it's it fun, fun being the showrunner. And so we went, let's just keep doing that. I mean, I think it's hard because you think back when you're, I, to give your, your, your younger self advice is, is, for me anyway, I wouldn't have taken it because I know that, like, I think about this a lot where I go, when you start being nostalgic for those times, you go, well, what would I tell myself? What would, what would you know, 15 years from now, what would I tell myself now? And I would probably say the same thing. I'd go enjoy it more. Don't worry about it as more. Sit back and kind of like enjoy the moment and don't stress out and don't, don't, 
you know, lose sleep and freak yourself out and not sleep for a week because you're so worried about a deadline that really doesn't mean anything. You can push the deadline and nothing's going to happen. But then the part of you that goes, the part of you that goes, no, the worrying is why it works. The, the freaking out, the hand wringing, the excessive stress is why you know, that's the thing that drives you. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's honestly, that's, that's, I wouldn't have, I I could tell my younger self that, but I don't think I would have taken it in the same way that I won't take it now. I I still have to freak myself out about this and worry about it and be neurotic. And, and, uh, and, you know, the stress kind of drives us. Um, I, you know, I think honestly, sometimes we do our best work when we're staring down a deadline and we know it has absolutely has to be done, or at least we've convinced ourselves that it does. And, you know, it's two in the morning and we suddenly the light bulb goes on and we crank something out that we wouldn't in a million years have thought about at 1 p.m. that afternoon. You know, we just unfortunately had to had to get to that point. And that's just when it happens. You know, there's probably like writing stuff like, hey, you know, spend more time. You know, don't don't worry about the fact that you're spending six weeks writing the first act and you're going to spend, you know, like four days writing the second act because the first act is where all the hard work is, you know, stuff like that, where you're just like stuff that, duh, why don't we know this? But, you know, it just, it, it, it takes a long time to sing. Yeah, but the first act of your life and your adult life is also where the hard work is too. Not that it's gotten easier, but. No, no but I think, you know, we, we work with, now we have, you know, we have, a, usually when we put a writer's room together, everybody's, you know, our age or younger, um, just, you know, we, we have, we really like people who are hungry and people who are kind of green and, and really, you know, in the same way that a lot of these kids we work with as actors have never acted in anything. And, and it, that's the fun of it is really seeing them become confident and come into their own and understand their own skills. And watching uh, and, a kid get a laugh from an audience for the first time is cool. Cause that's a great feeling. But like when you sit there and some kid pulls a joke and like some of them, will look like without realizing if it's their first second episode you know they, the audience just explodes with laughter and their thought is they break the scene and they look at the crowd because they can't believe they're getting this huge laugh you know and that that's pretty fun like we definitely had a few moments like but that. i think with with when you think about you know we do often have to tell our younger selves because these are the writers that we're we're working with so they they are kind of us 10 years ago or and um honestly probably the biggest thing is like like there's a point where you stop writing for your friends and and writing to make like your friends laugh and make your family laugh and you go I need to write something that's going to be kind of universal. I need to I need to try to figure out how to tell, you know, write jokes or tell a story that's going to appeal to people beyond my circle of friends and I think that you know, I think that a lot of times even we see you know, comedies and stuff that that you go watch them and you go, God, I feel like there was just them and their friends sitting around laughing, you know, big for? big movies and or big shows and you go I, did, I felt like I wasn't included because it was just them and their buddies, you know. And I think it's important to kind of get past that. And you go, how do you write something that's going to speak to a wider audience? Because that's our business. Well, I hope people that listen to this don't think it was one big inside joke. I, I hope not. Yeah, I think you guys, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. you guys, uh, you know, I've always just loved knowing you and working with you. And I'm just so impressed with the way you've kind of even gone across genres, as we talked about a lot today. I mean, super psycho, you know. Sweet 16, you took horror, you know, and reality, right? Banana splits, you took kids and horror. Like, you think you could ever take reality, kids, and horror all together? Is that Probably. possible? I'm sure you could. Look, yeah. I, I think, again, it really, it's funny, because the banana splits thing, that's the most, that's like the thing that's coming out, this, like the soonest, that's what we're down at Comic-Con for. And it's such a weird one. But I have to say, when the people at, at Blue Ribbon at Warner's came, and they were like, hey, we want to do 
Banana Splits as a horror movie, there was no point where we went, I don't know. We were just like, yep, I know what that is. And I and I absolutely did. I mean, there was like no moment. that, And that's the thing about taking IP and doing something different with it. That's exciting. When you go, oh, this is not never what this was meant to be. But let, that's what makes it fun. That's what makes it feel like you're putting your twist on something. Because, you know, we've we've done both. We've we've you know, put written our names in the ledger of Scooby-Doo and of the Flintstones and of the Jetsons. And you go, oh, cool, great, fine. But to do something weird with it, to really turn it upside down, that's fun. And I think that when you're dealing with something like that, again, when you talk about like Riverdale or something, and it's it's IP that's so old that you can, you know, turn it on its head and it's going to feel fresh to a new audience. Um, they're going to, not going to care that you did that. That's it. it it's very liberating. It's very fun. It's exciting. You know, when we did the uh, when we did Banana Splits, we had this phone call set up, and uh, and with someone from from Sci-Fi and and with Blue Ribbon Content, and um, we got on there, and they went, "Hey, so it's the Banana Splits, which we were familiar with, and we want to do it as a horror movie, where basically the Banana Splits are killing a bunch of people." And we went, and like Jed said, I mean, when you think about a kid show. It was kind of it was kind of a perfect storm because we had worked on kid shows for so long that now we were get we got to write basically a movie about a kid show that goes completely wrong and uh, and a bunch of people get murdered so we were able to sort of like write some of those characters maybe a little bit inspired by people in our in our history who we wanted to see <laughs> murdered um, and you know but it was also uh, you know it it was taking that thing that we knew if we had taken like Yo Gabba Gabba or something that's just a little too fresh and done it, it would have been like, that's horrible. Why would you do that? But it's the banana splits. It came out in the late 60s. You can right, do you that. You can go a little further back, yeah. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Kill Creek, a uh, book that you wrote and you mentioned earlier, right? You can self-publish. You can do your own thing. You, Scott, wrote this book. I'm not as, you know, steeped in the horror genre, but I bought it to support, you know, a friend who I you know, have very, you know, high regard for. It scared the fucking bejesus out of me. Um, it's excellent. I know that Showtime has optioned it and, you know, picked it up and, you know, just, I mean, just want to congratulate that and let the audience know if they want to be scared out of their mind. They oh, should, yeah. They should read Hill Creek or your new book, Violet. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was, well, that's, and that's, I think that, you know, when Jed was saying that we have, we, we work really well together, but we do have sort of, at, at the end of the day, I'm really into horror um, and, and Jed's really into sci-fi and, and sort of classic comedy and that just loves, you know, sitcoms and, and comedies. And I think it, it's a little bit, this is a little bit of an outlet for me to, to write those horror stories. And I was very fortunate to hook up with, um, a publisher ink shares out of Oakland and they're a little publisher, but incredibly supportive, worked really, really hard with me, um, through Kill Creek. And that came out, it got, um, some, some really nice attention. Um, you know, Joyce Carol Oates was tweeting about it and, and, uh, and then I, R.L. Stein would tweet it at me about it. Um, because I, I, uh, there was a typo that he didn't appreciate, (laughs) but, um, no, but he said he really liked it. And, uh, and you know, that was fun, uh, because as I ended up, we, we took it to a company called platform one, they optioned it. Um, and then we were going to take it out, uh, to pitch it. Um, to sort of, you know, all, all the usual places, Netflix, Hulu, um, Amazon, you know, Apple, uh, everybody. And uh, they hooked me up with a really uh, fantastic uh, executive producer named Misha Green, who um, did Underground and is doing Lovecraft Country for HBO and is incredibly smart, incredibly uh, creative. 
and 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 great at, at going how do you take ip even and that was a hard thing it was my book and so it was she really made me look at it and go how do you take this thing that's incredibly clo close to you and personal and do something different with it you know and 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 then while we were doing that scott derrickson the director um dr strange and sinister and uh randomly tweeted uh or actually he just uh, he dm'd me on on twitter and went hey i just read kill creek i loved it what's going on with it so then he came on board and um yeah so it's it's just like it's a really cool thing i think anything you do in this business where you you put your heart and soul into something and then you get it out there and it finds an audience you know that's that's the sort of drug that we're all you know that that we all get hooked on well right? that's the kid getting the laugh for the first time absolutely sure. Definitely. absolutely well there's many more posters to fill this wall hopefully not many duplicates because you are you know juicing your stats here a little bit being honest <laughs> that's right they're two different projects <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but many more nonetheless and uh i don't know i think you guys told out a lot of great advice and you know, I, I see. hope so. I hope it doesn't sound like a bunch of bullshit, but uh, eh, well, some of it. But yeah, you know of course. what? We'll edit that part out. Perfect. Yeah. Do but that, please. Awesome. awesome. You guys are the best. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank so you. Much. So there you have it. The true story of Malibu Rescue. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at GregoryMercer.com and ChristopherCarmichael.com. Thank you as well to our guests, Scott Thomas and Jed Elenoff, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, Please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.